Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 7. Uh, your bulletin may say, might say something a little different. I, I chose a smaller section of the passage in God's providence. <clears throat> so we'll read verses uh, 14 all the way through 24. Hear God's word. <clears throat> About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the te- temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You noticed I hadn't entitled it. Um, that's because by Thursday I didn't have a title. Um, Willing to, go- to do God's will is um, the title you want to, if you want to put one there. Willing to do God's will. If we remember what has gone before, Jesus' brothers encouraged Jesus to go down to the Feast of Booths to reveal himself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. He did not want to reveal himself publicly because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But he went there secretly and began teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths. We, of course, know that this is not the first time Jesus taught in the temple. Nor was it the first time the people were amazed at his teaching. In fact, if you remember, this place was very familiar to him. It was so familiar, he called the temple his father's house. When he had entered the temple at 12 years of age during the Passover... Consider the passage from Luke, starting at verse 46. It states, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. I've been teaching 36 years now. Took 12 years of school. Four years of specialization in college. And constant adjustment to changes every year. 
I have been taught by many outstanding teachers. You can't teach as long as I have and not have some degree of competency. But, but I doubt any student of mine has ever gone home and told their parents that my teaching was amazing. In fact, I've never used those words to describe any of my teachers either, nor any pastors, I have to admit. Excellent, yes. Inspiring, rarely. But amazing, never. When this last time, when was the last time you were astonished or surprised or filled with wonder at someone's teaching? In my life, there's only been one person's teaching that has amazed me. Jesus's, Jesus Christ has, report, has reported here in the Gospels. In this passage, we don't even know what he was saying as he taught in the temple. We simply know the reaction. Amazement. So what about Jesus' teaching was so astonishing, so surprising, so wonderful? It was his extraordinary combination of unique characteristics. He had an extraordinary understanding of the scripture. This usually revealed, is revealed itself when he, when he was tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Consider the passage. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died, and after, after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the women died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection neither mar- they, met, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning those at resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Up to this point, I don't think anyone would have used the passage to refute the Sadducees and to point to the fact that these men of the faith were living and not dead. His understanding of the scriptures here is extraordinary. The fact that he could create such an extraordinary uh, composition is truly astonishing. The other distinction of his teaching was that he taught with authority. You know, when I prepare a sermon, many times I refer to a commentary to learn what other people had gleaned from the scripture over the years. I might quote somebody like Spurgeon or John Pipe or C.S. Lewis, John Calvin, see what they had to say on the subject more than what John Sundmuckner has to say. The Jews, likewise, had learned, learned men who were teachers. The most prominent, scholar, prominent scholars of that day were Gamaliel, Gamaliel and Nicodemus. Paul was taught by Gamaliel, and Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of all Israel. Jews eventually formed the Talmud, where they recorded different teachers' understanding of the Torah and the law throughout the ages. 
They would quote these sayings to give weight to the words that they would say. Not Jesus. He spoke with authority because he was the authority. In fact, if we look at Colossians 1 verse 15, it states, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you are the author of all things, then you most certainly have authority over all things and speak that way as well. What was amazing was they were listening to a man who spoke with the authority of God. What was even more amazing was his knowledge appeared to arise in a complete vacuum. He did not go to any recognized school, nor was he taught by any famous teacher. And Jesus was giving to saying such things as, You have heard it said, but I say. Consider Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say that anyone who is angry with their brother and sister will be subject to judgment. And again, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And again, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. No wonder the scripture here states, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus gives us the answer to this question in the very next verse. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. Consider for a moment the person noted for wisdom in the Old Testament. It was, of course, Solomon. We learn from Scripture that ultimately Solomon got his wisdom from God, but we also know that his father was David and his mother was Bathsheba. He was the favored son of the favored wife. He learned David's wisdom from an early age in his father's house, and of course David's wisdom also came from God. So Jesus is in his father's house, the temple, teaching from the authority of his father the wisdom and insight and understanding he got directly from Father God. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus is the direct conduit of his father's knowledge. Not only that, but it is not by happenstance that he was there communicating this. He was sent directly by God with the express purpose to share what the Father had told him to tell them. He was a faithful messenger. 
You know, Proverbs 25, 25 says, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The gospel literally means good news. And there is no further country than heaven. A gulf so large we would need a bridge that would extend from one end of the universe to the other to encompass the depths of our sin. The good news is the Father had made a way and Jesus is the way if we believe unto him unto salvation. Jesus is both the message and the messenger. Just as he's both the priest and the sacrifice. In John 17, we see the connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because it addresses whether or not we have the will to do God's will. It states, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The will to do God's will. It all boils down to that in each of our lives. Do we follow our own wills or do we seek after God's will? Recently, I found a t-shirt online that says, I never dreamt that one day I would become a grumpy old man, but here I am killing it. I have to admit that I like that shirt. I have been grumpy. You can ask my wife. The things happening with my kids, things happening at my school, things happening at our church have made me grumpy. I've been pretty open about my grumpiness, these exact things. Now, my son Tyler is a godly man. He t- tends to give wise counsel, and, and he gently reminded me to consider how God would want me to handle these things. And there's nothing worse than a gentle rebuke from your own kid. We all know the proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But there's something about having your child be your surgeon that's a little bit disconcerting. I wanted to stew in bitterness and anger, and now he has reminded me that it is not how God would operate and not how he wants me to operate either. Do we will to do our own will or or to do God's will? Do I go with my own autonomy or do I bow down my will to do God would have me to do? If we will to do God's will, we will recognize Christ's teaching as coming from God. The Jews were continually questioning Jesus' authority. Jesus' magnum opus dealing with his authority also happened in the temple, and it is found in Luke 20, starting at verse 1. It states, One day as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This passage from the outset expresses the amazing teaching and wisdom of Jesus once again. His response to their question with his own question actually answers their question for them. 
That is beyond my comprehension, how he was capable of doing that. When they question his authority, he responds with a straightforward question of his own, which reveals their own heart attitude. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Notice the first consideration. If we say from heaven, they would anticipate, he would say, well, why did you not believe him? John, we know, was the one who was declared that Jesus was the Messiah. He was to make straight the path of the Lord. And so if they answered favorably, they would also have to acknowledge that Jesus' authority also came from God. They did not question Jesus to legitimately find an answer. They questioned him so they could accuse him. So they could not go with that option, of course. They feared getting stoned if they said, said John's baptism was from man because they feared the people, which revealed they feared men more than trying to answer with integrity. So saying they did not know revealed their hearts and their wills. They were more concerned about doing their own will than actually seeking after truth. The fact he could ask such a question that would force them to reveal the true nature of their hearts is nothing less than amazing. It boggles my mind and reveals that Jesus' insight and understanding is so much greater than anyone else's. No one dared to ask him any more questions. It also reminds me that there was a reason that Jesus did not defend himself when he was tried before the courts of man. If he had defended himself, he would have won his trial, and we would have all perished in our sins. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You know, I've mentioned Pascal's wager in the past. Pascal's wager is that the best bet is to believe in God. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. When I talk to my students about Pascal, I ask the question, why do so many people not take Pascal up on his wager? And the reason is obvious. If you believe in God, you have to recognize his authority over your own life. You can't do whatever you please. Many people don't will to do God's will. So they don't recognize Christ's word as coming from the Father. <clears throat> the one who seeks, seeks his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood, it states. Another compelling aspect of Christ's life is his consistency and his humility. Consider Philipp, Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Consider these words. Emptied himself, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. He did not seek his own glory, but he sought to glorify his heavenly Father. There's no hint in the Gospels that Jesus ever did anything to bring glory to anybody but the Father. And even his anger was only righteous anger for the holiness of God. 
He was true, and in him there is no falsehood. Consider these words by, sung by the famous atheist Billy Joel. He writes and sings, But if you look for truthfulness, might just as well be blind. It always seems so hard to give. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honestly is hardly ever heard, and mostly what I need from you. Truth without a hint of falsehood. Half a truth is a lie. Seven-eighths of the truth is all lie. You know, my, one, my son went through a phase where he did not want to eat birthday cake. So one year, Susan prepared a cake, and when Tyler went to cut it, he couldn't because it was too hard. Susan had frosted a cooked ham in its metal casing, which was really funny. The biggest and the best lies are hidden by a veneer of truth. You watch the news. How do you discern the truth? The liberals, the conservatives, how do you know that a politician is lying? His lips are moving, right? The scripture tells us to be above reproach. That means there is no criticism that can be made. You know, one of the hardest things about preaching is not preparing the sermon. It's knowing how tempted you are to sin, knowing your current sins, knowing the evil that lurks within you, knowing your hypocrisy and getting in the pulpit and seeking to honor God. I'm not true, but I know one who is. It is precisely because I am a sinner that I need a Savior. You know, Pontius Pilate would have to rank highly on the list of lying, tainted politicians. During the course of the trial he conducted for Jesus, he asked the cynical rhetorical question, what is truth? Can you imagine all the lies, duplicitousness, evil, and murder that Pontius Pilate lived? He lived in a cesspool of political expediency, and truth was far from the world he operated in. Here's a passage again. It states, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Pilate's worst mistake was thinking that truth was a thing, when ultimately truth is a person. He did not recognize the truth, not even when he was staring truth in his face. This is why, for political expediency, he could justify executing an innocent man by, by death on a cross. He never saw the face of truth, nor listened to his voice. A phrase we have not heard until recently is the expression, your truth. That's your truth. Why don't you share your truth? You know, it probably comes from a misdirected desire to give voice to oppressed individuals. Share your truth could miraculously be expressed as, please share your personal experience. But what happens if your truth directly contradicts the truth of someone else? All sound reasoning tells that two contradictory things cannot be true at the same time. Such illogic is found in, in our pantheistic world all the time. We hear it from the Masons when they say that men of different faiths all worship the same God, 
regardless of the name. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, he does not leave open the option to follow Buddha or Muhammad. Jesus is the only way, or he is no way. Belief in him is mutually exclusive, and anyone who tells you otherwise is deceived and does not have very good logic either. The final verses addressed here today get to the heart of why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. Jesus states, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? A question, a statement, and a question. Rapid fire. They almost seem unrelated, but they are completely connected. Even though the Jews claim that Jesus had a demon for saying that, and they ask him, who's seeking to kill you, implying that was not the case, they knew the truth, because later on in the passage we read, some of the people of Jerusalem said, is not this the man whom, whom they're seeking to kill? They wanted Jesus killed because they believed he was not following the law of Moses. Why was he not following the law of Moses? Because he was healing on the Sabbath day. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What was happening was they really wanted to kill him because he was exposing their hypocrisy. He pointed out they worked on the Sabbath when they performed circumcision on the Sabbath, which was also keeping the law. Jesus made an entire man entirely well on the Sabbath, we're told. Was that not better? And Jesus' point, ultimate point is, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. None of, us, none of us here would judge by appearances, would we? We don't look at a man and judge him because his beard is not completely groomed, or clothes are a bit unkempt, or judge a woman by her facial features, or maybe a weight issue. We wouldn't do that, would we? The Lord knows our hearts, but one thing we can be assured of, that we need to judge with right judgment. We need to dig further than the appearances to the heart of the matter. It's like we might tell our son or daughter who someday are looking forward to being married, you need to practice working on being the kind of person that you would want to marry so that when you meet that person, they will want to be married to you. Our expectation should be that we'll be the kind of congregation that would support their pastor and their family in their weaknesses and challenges, even as they support us through our difficulties. You know, I mentioned Eric Little recently. He went, on, he went to compete in the Olympics, but he refused to run in the qualifying heat because it was on the Sabbath. But unless you read his biography, you would not know that in the prisoner of war camp where he eventually died, he reversed that decision. He encouraged all the kids with sports to keep their spirits up while being in, detained in a, by very cruel Japanese captors. And he allowed the children to play sports on the Sabbath. Why, you might ask? In his mind, the children had so little joy in the camp that allowing them to have some pleasure, some way to express joy on the Sabbath was a good thing. To judge with righteous judgment... Our goal is not to fixate on every letter of the law, but to focus on pleasing our Heavenly Father in all we do, because we love him and want to bring him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard from your Son. If we are willing to do God's will, we will recognize your words, that they come from you. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to be willing to do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name.